from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get ready and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got ready and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. But Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb that is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his justice was taken away. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed as he passed through. He kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let's love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only Son into the world, that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we remain in him, and he in us, because he has given to us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, we also are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. 
We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Father, you are the perfect love. You're the perfect one. Your love is perfect. And we are here to experience you through your Son, Jesus Christ. May your word, your living word, come alive in us tonight and perfect us uh, as your scriptures say in your love, or that your love might be perfected in us. For your glory, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, So today we are talking about the fifth Sunday in Easter, which is this coming Sunday, five out of seven. And uh, as we look over our, our scripture readings for this week, um, the whole, you know, the first point on the, on the Acts is Easter is a witnessing season. If you notice what we've, it's been the theme of every scripture reading that we've had since, the, since Sunday, uh, from the first Sunday in Easter, Eastern Sunday, is the disciples continually went out and then shared the gospel and evangelized and proclaimed, became uh, witnesses to what they have seen, um, because the resurrection was pretty crazy. It was new. Uh, they didn't expect it, even though they were told plainly. And then they are to be witnesses of Christ's resurrection um, to all the nations, right? And even in Luke 24, he says, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in all nations. And so we're going to go Acts, Gospel reading in John, and then First John. And so um, we've been going through the Gospel of John and our Easter readings and uh, Acts and First John. And so um, a lot of the major themes in these scripture readings is the same as far as witnessing, bearing fruit, and stuff. We're going to try to look at it uh, and continue in that. One of the things, um, I guess, when we get to our First John reading is, I guess, kind of comforting, kind of, I guess that's just how it is is there's like four or five chapters of like imperatives of what we ought to do and what we ought to be like. And 
Um, most of what the book, the epistle of First John is talking about is just like being kind and loving one another and living in unity. And you think uh, that could be handled in like one chapter or something, but we're pretty thick, scold. And so it takes quite a few. And so uh, let's look at, let's go turn it open to Acts 8. And so we often talk about Philip being the only person in scripture who is called an evangelist. So I want to look at that a little bit more. Um, if we follow <clears throat> who Philip was, uh, uh, Philip, I think he's mentioned in the Gospels as in somewhere, but um, I didn't actually look at that. But so there's seven people chosen to serve in Acts chapter six, right? And that's when we see in, in Acts when Philip really comes into the scene. And it doesn't say he's a deacon, but uh, a lot of streams of church thought would say that these seven people are acting in a deacon way. They're table waiters. They're helping to hand out the bread, right, to the needy. The apostles are too burdened. They should be, it says clearly that they should be uh, given to prayer and to teaching um, of scripture and shouldn't be uh, bothered by uh, the busyness of passing out bread. And so they assign people to help serve. Philip's one of those. Uh, he's later mentioned, we know that that's the same Philip because in Acts chapter 21, it says Philip, who was one of the seven. And, uh, and so Philip then, after Stephen gets stoned, is the church in Jerusalem is dispersed. Uh, Philip comes on the scene in uh, Samaria, uh, evangelizes there, essentially starts a church, um, calls for uh, a couple of elders, the apostles to come down and help pray for the, because the Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet. They pray, lay on hands. They start a church in Samaria. And then Philip is called over, we, as we start in verse 26, um, an angel of the Lord actually comes to Philip and says, uh, go this way, it's a desert place, right? Not normally a place you'd want to go in evangelism or church planning. Just go over to this desert. And so um, I think, this is just my kind of my own personal thought, we read the account of, of Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, and we start thinking um, in this context, that's what an evangelist is like in some ways that are, this is a very one-off uh, section of scripture, right? This is the only place that I, I know of where uh, Philip is speaking to somebody and it's not in a place where a church was planted or was going to be planted or that that person was given the sacrament of baptism inside the context of planting a church. And so that's the only time I know of in scripture where that happens. And so this is kind of a one-off. We don't know what happens to the Ethiopian eunuch and then Philip is taken up by the spirit and carried off to another land, right? Uh, let me know when you're that filled with the Holy Spirit where he's picking you up and taking you to different cities. I always felt like that would save a lot of money on gas and time. And so, um, but, so that's how we kind of normally interpret it of like this modern day evangelism or someone who's an evangelist of, like I really can't count, I would lose track of the people just because I work for the church I'm here, especially at the old building during the day. Uh, people who come by who are just saying they're traveling evangelists who want to come and speak at our church for a weekend. And we're like, well, I don't know who you are. I just met you. Uh, that's not how we operate generally. You, we kind of build on relationships. And I mean, it's, it's, it's really common um, 
for people not to be tied to a local community, call themselves evangelists, and go out and never be tied or accountability, be accountable to elders. Um, and that's not who Philip was. He was accountable to the, uh, if you look in, in eight, he was accountable to the apostles. Um, nobody was going around planning churches without the uh, authority, direction, and leadership from the apostles, and very clearly by the Holy Spirit here. And so we've kind of adopted and looked at Philip in a different light, more modernly, where um, where Philip lands and plants himself, or where I should say where the Holy Spirit puts him and he lands. Uh, it was in Caesarea where uh, by the time you get to Acts chapter 21, Paul's coming back and staying or seeing Philip, and he's got four daughters who prophesy, and he stayed in Caesarea the rest of his life. That's where he planted. Um, and so I just want to kind of like talk about that a little bit because uh, that's not the normal pattern. This is a one-off experience that Philip has with the Ethiopian eunuch. But we're talking about an Easter, in our Easter season, um, about you know going all the way back to Acts chapter 1, where the whole purpose, one of the main purposes of the church is to be witnesses, to be a community of people who witness and evangelize and experience kingdom growth. And we've largely lost that in the Western church. Um, you know, you can go to any given church anywhere and they probably have some kind of missions or outreach or something. But generally, I've actually never ran into any church not, not excluding us, who has a community way of thinking that everyone's evangelizing and everyone's looking to spread the kingdom in outward growth. Uh, we do that in certain ways. You know, we talk about in discipleship groups and one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And, um, and that is a form of witnessing because we're witnessing and testifying to one another uh, about the resurrection and the kingdom and everything that that entails. But uh, it's just not a common thing in the West anymore to be an evangelistic church. And that was one of the main themes of the church that Jesus called them to. You know, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria until the ends of the earth. And so that's a large area that we have to recapture and to be a community uh, focused on Christ is to be a community focused on evangelism. And I'll say it every week for at least two more weeks because that's what we got in Easter. That doesn't mean that everybody is going out and doing what Philip did, but it does mean that everyone's playing together on a team in evangelism and whatever. That, and we do that like we talked about in First John last week of we witness to one another and our witness to one another is a witness to the larger community. And we'll look about that. We'll look at that more. Um, and so Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch is a one-off instance uh, where baptism is given, not in the context of where a church is planted, uh, but, you know, we don't know. We'll find out in heaven what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, I like to think that he went uh, and was directed, he would have had to been directed into a church somewhere. And I think that not just because of the larger context of uh, Christ's teaching and the whole Bible's teaching on the church, um, but the Ethiopian eunuch says something. Uh, like, I just love how the scriptures lay this out. Uh, the spirit tells Philip to go and go down this road. 
and he hears, like, first of all, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the scriptures out loud. Do you guys normally, like, uh, if you're in an Uber or in the back of a taxi and you're reading the Bible, would you be reading it out loud? Uh, not in our cultural context. Um, and I really don't know what that cultural context is. But it, it, like, the Lord totally directed this, right? And so... Um, we usually, in evangelism, scatter seeds, we scatter seeds as broadly as we can because we don't know what the Lord's doing every time exactly. But it is sure that in evangelism and in gospel kingdom growth that the Spirit is directing you towards somebody to hear it, right? And he's reading Isaiah 53, and uh, Philip says, Hey, I heard you're reading that. Do you, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how could I understand unless somebody guides me, right? And we start to think in a, um, in a modern, new, evangelical Christian way that Philip preaches the gospel to him, asks him to say the sinner's prayer, whatever the heck that is, and then he receives Jesus, gets baptized, and he goes on uh, and does whatever the heck he wants to do, and right? The the Ethiopian, Ethi, uh, having trouble with that today. The Ethiopian eunuch uh, has a clear understanding by the Holy Spirit that he can't understand this, whether it's about the prophets, whether it's about somebody else, uh, or what. And um, I've mentioned this before, but just so it's kind of fresh. When you read Isaiah fifty three, it's about the suffering servant. It doesn't necessarily say the Christ, but most people would understand it. We would understand it as the Christ. Philip interprets it correctly. But modern-day Jews would say that Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, is the whole nation of Israel, right? And so um, uh, you can even look at popular people, you know, conservatives that I like, like Ben Shapiro, who uh, reads and understands Christianity, and um, that's his interpretation, because that's the larger Jewish interpretation, that the suffering servant is the nation of Israel. So the modern-day Jews have a, uh, a little bit of a victim mentality when they read that because they're the ones that bear the sins of the world. They're the ones that their backs are, are whipped and, and they're the propitiation for the world's sins. And so that's how they understand it. But the Ethiopian eunuch knew that he couldn't understand it unless somebody guided him, right? And... Uh, he needed somebody to give him understanding. That is part of evangelism, right? It's not, I'm just going to go out there and do some street preaching. It's, I'm going to sit down and help you understand the scriptures, right? Uh, in God's infinite wisdom, uh, the Spirit took him away, and Philip didn't disciple him for the rest of his life. But that is a theme in evangelism, Right? We have the EPDC. We continue to do evangelism until somebody is mature, as mature as you or goes past you in a ministry. And uh, we always need someone to guide us. And so that is part of evangelism. And so we tend to think, I, I say we, I'm just saying me. I'm just projecting my feelings onto you guys. Uh, I feel like that's the safest place to be. Uh, is, you know, I tend to think, and I'm assuming everyone else tends to think of when we talk about evangelism, 
we think in this modern, unbiblical way, or less than biblical way, of we're going out like Philip did in this one instance. We preach the gospel and then we leave. But we continue, we're doing evangelism when we sit down with people to help them understand the scriptures. That's a huge part of evangelism. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch was already pre-evangelized, a God-fearer. He had the scriptures, uh, and the Lord appointed a time for him to understand who the Christ was. And uh, and I'm, I would be, I'd bet all my life savings, uh, which, lucky for me, it's not a lot, uh, would be that the Ethiopian eunuch made his way into a community way of discipleship to help him understand more of the scriptures, right? That's what Paul and all of the New Testament epistles are about, is helping us understand the scriptures that were already there. And so, um, uh, that should be our tendency too, right? We should be a um, community, an evangelistic community that isn't just ready to prepare and have a defense and speak and proclaim. Talked a lot about last week of just like looking for an opportunity. We should be ready. The Spirit will guide us. Uh, he will lead us to those people who he wants to birth into his kingdom. The Spirit leads us to those people who he's going to open their ears and their eyes so that they would be born by the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit's totally in charge of it, uh, but we can we should be prepared like Philip. We should be a community of people uh, who are ready to uh, help people understand the word, to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection and his power thereof. And as we get into uh, John and First John uh, and bear fruit in those ways. And so let's look at the Gospel of John. John 15. <clears throat> I'm going to read the last verse in our scripture reading, which is a break in the thought a little bit, and then I'm going to go back to uh, a couple verses, because we're actually going to spend most of our time in First John, or that's what I presume, but you know how it goes. And so John 15, 1 through 8, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear fruit, bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So um, if you guys, if anybody was here last week, remembers or cares, uh, we talked about like proof of salvation, right? Um, there's no such thing. Uh, the, 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 there is proof of salvation. It's evident. It's self-evident. You're saved and you're not in danger because you were saved. If you were stolen, if you were kidnapped and then someone saved you, the cops broke in and saved you and rescued you, you wouldn't, you know, be like two years later, like, am I really saved am I, or am I still kidnapped? right? The salvation is self-evident. And so um, Jesus says that you bear fruit and prove to be my disciples. And so um, we have to continually go back and transform our minds to a more biblical way of thinking. And so fruit is a huge biblical theme, right? From uh, Genesis 1, in a garden, there's fruit. Adam's job was to tend the garden, to beautify it, and to protect it. And so, um, by the grace of God, the Lord put a woman in my life that helped me understand what it's like to bear fruit and how hard it is because uh, we have a garden and we planted some spinach and the squirrels ate it. 
And then, uh, yeah, I know. And, well, it's just spinach, that doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> I was hoping we were going to plant like a, I, didn't, I, I was trying to plant steak, and it would grow, it doesn't work that way. Um, but it takes a really long time to cultivate. You really do have to protect it. <laughs> the squirrels will get it. Uh, unless, I mean, it could be some guy in East Dayton jumping my fence and eating this, eating the spinach. That's a real possibility. Um, but it really does have to be protected. And to bear fruit, we have to like, we live in a culture again of where we live in um, uh, such a culture that we don't have to garden and tend fruit and we're not a, a culture that's given to horticulture generally. Uh, it's a little decadent in that way, which robs us a little bit because um, when we were going through that season of fasting and prayer, remember that, what's that verse about uh, break up the fallow ground? Hosea 10, 12. Thank you, John Luke. And I had never broken up fallow ground before. And then we go and work on the garden and I have to like use a, a hoe and a shovel. And I'm like, oh man. And this was just land that was cultivated last year. And it was already hard. And it was hard to break up. I couldn't imagine trying to break up fallow ground that's been sitting like that for 10 years mm -hmm. or five or whatever. And so that added like a much deeper, a much new or a newer depth of understanding of what the Lord's trying to say. I had, I knew it was hard ground. I just didn't know how hard it was. I was like, well, you put a little sweat equity in there, and uh, there's so much stuff. We could talk about horticulture, anyways. But that's a huge biblical theme that goes from Genesis one to Revelation twenty-two. Is that the last chapter, or is it twenty-one? Twenty-two, and. Um, it would do us well to re-examine all of that and what that means, right? And I just want to point out a couple things before we go to First John. And so um, I just found this in my studies and I found this because uh, I hadn't actually done a uh, rendering of the, of the Greek uh, for these verses particularly. And luckily my um, ESV Bible had a notation on it. And so in verse 3, it says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And so it almost seems like Jesus is like changing themes or changing ideas. But he's not. Let me read it to you how, um, if you read this in the Greek, it would, you would understand it. I am the true vine, my, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he cleans or he takes away or prunes and every branch that he bears that bears fruit, he prunes or he cleans, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are pruned, to, you are cleaned, or pruned, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and and so he's not changing. He's actually using the same thing, because of the word, the gospel that was spoken to them, the word of the kingdom. They are ready to bear fruit, and I think that's a huge shift in my way of thinking, at least, like, okay, I already, I think of cleaned, atoned for. First John, we talk about like a propitiation, and that's kind of like very ethereal. And I know before God, I'm righteous through the eyes of Christ and everything. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying you are already pruned because of the words I spoke to you, and you're ready to bear fruit, right? 
And think of that, and this is at the end of Christ's ministry, earthly ministry, when he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and about the uh, conception of the church going forward. And so tie that together with every, um, uh, every instance when Jesus talks about the kingdom and talks about like a mustard seed and the word that's planted that bears fruit and all these other um, horticulture, gardening, fruit-bearing themes. And so partially he's talking about individuals, but he's talking about the kingdom of God is going to start bearing fruit. Uh, the kingdom of God had, had borne some fruit uh, at this time when Christ is speaking, but not in such a way that he's talking about the words I've spoken to you. It's going to, as he said, when you prune or bears fruit, he prunes more, so it bears more fruit. It's going to continue to expand. And so uh, I just want to mention something real quick, uh, that there's two types of fruit production. There's cultivated and there's wild, or there's um, unnatural, which is you plant something that wasn't naturally there, like you plant a garden and you cultivate it and you protect it and tend it until it grows up and you harvest the seeds. And then there's uh, Jess and Noel and I, we went on a wild edibles class on Monday. And yeah, okay, this is in South Carolina. Get your minds out of the gutter. Not those type of edibles. Uh, uh, we were in the woods, and we were eating lots of plants. Uh, and I kept my shoes on. But I'll tell you more about that. But, but those were wild plants that were just growing. Nobody planted them. Nobody watered them. You just go and you pick and eat, right? And so there's that type of fruit that you can eat, which is wild or uncultivated and natural. And then there's cultivated, unnatural, uh, however you want to describe it. And so I think that is also in the kingdom. And we're going to see that in 1 John. And we can turn there. And uh, so it's, almost, it's, all, it's always weird when we read it because you can go down the stream of thinking of, well, 1 John says that the love of God is evident in us. And we know that... Uh, because God loves us, we should love one another, and that love would bear its own fruit in us, and that would be a wild or uncultivated. That's just what the Holy Spirit deposited in us because he's a member of the Trinity, and when uh, we get born again by the Holy Spirit into his kingdom, we would naturally love one another, right? So why does John have to write to us to tell us to do that? Because that should already be natural in us. Because it is natural, but he wants it to bear more fruit, right? Um, have you ever noticed like or you want to notice have you ever seen wild patches of carrots or uh, just like acres of it no if you're going to cultivate or if you're going to um, pluck carrots or something that are wild there's going to be a little here a little there if you want acres and acres of carrots you have to cultivate it right and so that's how, I view, that's how I view it, is that there is something born in, us, born in us by the Holy Spirit, yet we still need these imperative commands to bear more fruit. And so 1 John chapter 4, in the last four minutes or so, um, 
starting in verse 7. Uh, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the penal atoning sacrifice for our sins, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he abides in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Right? And it goes on to talk about God's love being perfected in us. And so, uh, we could get really condemned because I know I don't love you guys in real manifest ways uh, that uh, the Gospels speak of, right? That there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, beginning in my heart and then ending in my actions. And so, uh, love is always manifest. So it wasn't enough that God would just um, send Christ to preach. And to, he could have. Uh, he could have just came and preached and helped us understand the scriptures and understand that and uh, whatever, and then just ascended just like Enoch to the Father. That would have been nice. Uh, but that he made a real propitiation. And so it had to become manifest. Love had to become incarnate, right? And so that's another proof of discipleship, of being a real disciple, is that if God abides in you, then your love will become, his love is flowing through you and into the brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean for everybody in the world. It actually means to those probably specifically in your community. It's really hard for me to love the Christians in Indonesia right now. I don't know them, they don't know me, and I can't do anything, right? But I can do something with John Luke. I can do something with Sam or Daniel or Noel and, or whatever. Uh, and, and so it has to become manifest. If it's not manifest, it's not real love, right? We talked a few weeks ago, if it's not sacrificial, it's not real love. And, and so the whole book of John gives us insight. He goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter about if God was our father, we would act like this. And the antithesis is if God is not our father, go to 1 John five nineteen that the whole world is in the power of the evil one. If Satan is your father, you won't act like this. And so that isn't something that is supposed to be condemning, right? He says uh, in here that the uh, perfect love casts out fear and that that fear is of condemnation. Condemnation that uh, Christ's love and his propitiation did not cover my sins, right? I'm sure there was a lot of, I think we struggle as Christians with the same thing that Christians struggled with in the first century um, of like, 
salvation. Uh, you know, I think there was that. Couldn't we really know? Is this ethereal uh, or whatever? And I think we struggle with the same things. And so, uh, God's love is manifest in us to drive out condemnation, right? And um, in other parts of First John, there's a lot of has a lot to do about loving one another, sacrificing for one another, helping one another, being the community that lives out of God's love, right? I can't know. Uh, I'm going to give you a little secret. I don't know if any of you are saved. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Not because I know you so well. I'm just like, I don't know. Uh, uh, because I'm not God. Uh, I can say and attest to everybody in this room about what biblical fruits they bear or don't bear. And I can attest that if you're in the church, God is doing something. And I can say that I'm called to love and sacrifice and lay my life down for you and the Lord's doing something for you and, um, and witness that, right? Obviously, we have, we're a small community, so we see people come and go and you know, some people stay for a while and then fall away and it's clear that they're falling away from the Lord, right? Uh, because First John says that if his love abides or stays or makes its house in you, his love will abide, make it stay, make its house. Uh, his love is doing that in you and you're doing that in him, right? Same thing with the vine. And um, probably the hardest thing to understand about that in our current context is that there's so many different churches we can just uproot and go anywhere where um, we're called to be a community that stays together, lives together, disciples together, evangelizes together. And because the first century church didn't have an option. They're not like, well, I'm going to, there's only one church in Ephesus, but I'm going to get up and move to Colossae because I don't like the way they worship here. They don't raise their hands or something, uh, which might have been, people might have actually had a problem with that in the first century. But who knows? Um, but that's who we're called to be. We're supposed to be this type of community that is continuing to witness and evangelize to one another, disciple one another, produce more disciples, witness and evangelize. And our community, the church we're called to be, is supposed to be that loving, sacrificial, like nothing's going to break that bond. The abiding factor um, is supposed to be there, right? And that becomes more and more powerful uh, as a witness to the greater society and, and community. And so um, I always... Uh, I guess I didn't actually write it. I always thought I wrote something. Uh, I actually wrote something I th different. So, re-examine First John. Everybody wants to be like their dad. John eight uh, thirty-eight. Right? The Pharisees were fathers. Their father was Satan, and they bore fruit to prove it. And so, you don't bear fruit overnight. It should be cultivated, but it's also natural if the Holy Spirit's doing something in you. And it has to grow, and we grow in that community. And so that was God's purpose ever since uh, creation with bearing fruit um, and becoming 
the community, the people of God we were called to be, right? Uh, when you look at after sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, uh, this harmony, this unity also entered. That was the first thing, right? No longer um, are people living in right relationship with one another. And the whole world lives that way, right? Uh, I'm already four minutes over. Let's try to only go two more minutes over. But I had a conversation with somebody over the weekend about, like, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. No. Uh, <laughs> people probably don't even know that reference. Just Google it. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Uh, Night the Roxbury. And, and but... Um, but love is always that willing choice. It's always a choice. And you either make that choice uh, based, you can make that choice saying, well, I'm gonna continue to love this person or this community or this thing as long as it pleases me. And until I'm dissatisfied, that's when my love stops, right? But when it says that God's love abides in us, we should have the type of love I'm arguing as a community that there's nothing in God's personhood that made him choose us except for his choice. And he stands by his choice. So it's that type of love that is to abide in us. Right? We don't continue to love uh, just because it's easy or continue to sacrifice just because, because it's easy, but that wouldn't be a sacrifice then. But... Um, but we continue to choose because he's going to enable us to continue to choose. And he, his love is going to abide in us, and we're going to abide in his love. And it's got to be the same type of love. And so that goes for uh, spouse, children, pizza. If you love pizza, you've got to make the choice. You've got to stick with it, no matter what pizza does to you. <laughs> right? Uh, but, but that's the type of love. We're supposed to emulate and, and be the community that has the same love. And so we have to examine what that means in the larger context of how God loves us. And so go do that for the rest of your life and read the Bible and uh, be guided by the Spirit and bear fruit in that. Until then, uh, let's close there and worship uh, and have a time of prayer. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we uh, come to you and just humbly uh, seek, uh, as your scriptures say, to be filled with your spirit, that your love would abide in us, so that we can uh, uh, transform and, and take your love into the world, into the community you've placed us, into the larger context, that we would have the same type of love for one another that you have for us, that your love would be perfected that we'd actually do something that would show the perfectness, the completeness of your love and how we love one another as a community. Uh, as we worship tonight, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. May you be pleased as we offer to you a sacrifice of praise <coughs> through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.